This is chapter 17 and it's on analyzing starlight. The chapter has four sections, 17.1, the brightness of stars, 17.2, colors of stars, 17.3, the spectra of stars and brown dwarfs, and 17.4, using spectra to measure stellar radius, composition, and motion. The chapter has this great opening figure that is one of my favorite types for astronomy. It's taken from Earth and it's pointed towards the North, North Pole and it's a, a time lapse. So what happens as the picture is, is being recorded is the Earth is rotating, spinning around. And what you see are the arcs traced by different stars. So you see the series of beautiful circles, almost like looking at a, a record player and seeing the grooves. Although the, the, the arcs traced by the stars have both different colors and different intensities. So the color tells us something about the temperature of the star, generally, and the intensity tells us about how big the star is. So it's worth taking a look at if you have a moment and the figure caption reads, figure 17.1, star colors. This long time exposure shows the colors of stars. The circular motion of the stars across the image is provided by Earth's rotation. The various colors of the stars are caused by their different temperatures. So that's the caption. There are a couple of uh, opening paragraphs and they read, everything we know about stars, how they are born, what they are made of, how far away they are, how long they live, and how they will die, we learn by decoding messages contained in the light and radiation that reaches Earth. What questions should we ask and how do we find the answers? We can begin our voyage to the stars by looking at the night sky. It is obvious that stars do not all appear equally bright, nor are they the same color. To understand the stars, we must first determine their basic properties, such as what their temperatures are, how much material they contain, that is, their masses, and how much energy they produce. Since our sun is a star, of course the same techniques, including spectroscopy used to study the sun, can be used to find out what other stars are like. As we learn more about the stars, we will use these characteristics to begin assembling clues to the main problems we are interested in solving. They are, how do stars form? How long do they survive? And what is their ultimate fate? Section 17.1 is on the brightness of stars. And by the end of this section, you should be able to do two things. One, explain the difference between luminosity and apparent brightness. And two, understand how astronomers specify brightness with magnitudes. Luminosity. Perhaps the most important characteristic of a star is its luminosity. That's the total amount of energy at all wavelengths that it emits per second. Earlier, we saw that the sun puts out a tremendous amount of energy every second, and there are stars far more luminous than the sun out there. To make the comparison among stars easy, astronomers express luminosity of other stars in terms of the sun's luminosity. So, for example, the luminosity of the star Sirius is about 25 times that of the sun. You're probably familiar with the fact that in mathematics and in physics and a lot of sciences, we like to use symbols. And we use them so that we can use shorthand to express our, uh, the relationship between values. So here's one thing that I learned early on that I think is really cool. Every equation that you ever see is actually a sentence. So think of two plus two equals four. That's a sentence, but you can also visualize two with a plus sign, with a two, an equality sign, and four. So whenever you see funky math equations or symbols, they're just shorthand for words. That's really all they are. So if I continue in the text, it talks about a particular symbol. It says, we use the symbol L subscript sun to denote the sun's luminosity. So whenever you see the symbol L, it's capital L by the way, in astronomy, in our text, it means luminosity. And L with a subscript that has the word sun means the luminosity of the sun. Okay, hence the luminosity of Sirius can be written as 25 times L sun, 25 times the luminosity of the sun. 
In a later chapter, we will see that if we can measure how much energy a star emits and we also know its mass, then we can calculate how long it can continue to shine before it exhausts its nuclear energy and begins to die. Apparent brightness. Astronomers are careful to distinguish between the luminosity of a star, which has to do with its total energy output over time, and the amount of energy that happens to reach our eyes or a telescope on Earth. Stars are democratic in how they produce radiation. They emit the same amount of energy in every direction in space. Consequently, only a minuscule fraction of the energy given off by a star actually reaches an observer, like you and I, on Earth. We call the amount of a star's energy that reaches a given area, say one square meter each second here on Earth, its apparent brightness. If you look at the night sky, you will see a wide range of apparent brightnesses among the stars. Most stars, in fact, are so dim that you need a telescope to detect them. If all stars were the same luminosity, if they were like standard bulbs with the same light output, we could use the difference in their apparent brightness to tell us something we very much want to know, and that's how far away they are. So imagine that you're in a big room, like a big concert hall or ballroom or some other place that's just really, really large. And let's say it's dark, really dark, except for a few dozen 25 watt bulbs. And remember, 25 watts is really low and you only have a few dozen. And let's say they're placed in fixtures around the walls. Since they're all 25 watt bulbs, their luminosity or energy output is the same. But if you're standing in a corner, they don't all seem to have the same apparent brightness. Those close to you appear brighter. More of their light reaches your eye. Whereas those far away appear dimmer because their light has spread through more area before reaching you. It's become more or less more diluted. In this way, you can tell which bulbs are closest to you. In the same way, if all stars had the same luminosity, which they don't, we could immediately infer that the brightest appearing stars were close by and the dimmest appearing ones were further away. So to pin this idea more precisely, all right, we're at a good place where I can tell you one of the secrets, one of the magic aspects of light. <laughs> and it's magical because it's so simple and it's so useful to astronomers, to physicists, to a lot of engineers, just to people in their everyday experiences. And it goes like this. The brightness of something that you see, what I would say the intensity of that object, depends on how far away you are from it. That's kind of an obvious thing, right? If you're standing next to a source of light, your face is really bright because it's illuminating your face by a ton and it just seems really bright to you. If you step away, then your face is illuminated less, you know, it seems a little bit less. But here's the thing, the uh, amount that it drops is not linear with the increased distance. There's an inverse square relationship. So <laughs> what that means is, I'll just say it plainly, if you're standing next to a source of light and you measure the intensity of the light coming to your eye or on your face, it's about the same, you know, same thing. And then you double your distance between the source of light and yourself, that intensity is going to drop, not by half, but by a factor of four. So doubling the distance drops that value by a factor of four. Now, if instead you had tripled your distance, that value of intensity, the brightness, would have dropped by a factor of nine. If you had instead quadrupled your distance, so increased it by a factor of four, the brightness would have dropped by a factor of 16. If you had increased the distance by a factor of 5, how much do you think the brightness would have dropped? 25, right? So as you increase one thing, the other thing drops, and it drops by the square of the amount that you increase that one thing. So that's your inverse square law. And I'll just read from basically from what the book says about this, and we'll go back in. The energy we receive is inversely proportional to the square of the distance. If, for example, we have two stars of the same luminosity, and one is twice as far away as the other, you hear that? Twice as far away. It will look four times dimmer than the closer one. If it is three times farther away, it will look nine or in other words, three squared times dimmer and so forth. 
all of the examples we've covered so far in this section, the examples of having 25 watt light bulbs distributed around a single room, the example of looking at a single light source and changing your distance from that light source, and the example of comparing two stars of the same luminosity, they all assume the same thing, and that is that the light source doesn't change. The light source is the same. You have 25 watts, you have the same luminosity, um, but that doesn't happen with stars. When we look out in the night sky, different stars have different luminosity. So we can't just use luminosity to tell us about distance because it could be that one of those stars that we're looking at just has a really low luminosity by itself. So if you're equally distant between it and another star that had twice the luminosity, the other star would appear brighter even though you're the same distance from them. So the next part of the this section says, Alas, stars do not all have the same luminosity. Actually, we're pretty glad about that because having many different types of stars makes the universe a much more interesting place. But this means that if a star looks dim in a sky, we can't tell whether it appears dim because it had a low luminosity but is relatively nearby or because it has a high luminosity but is very far away. To measure the luminosity of stars, we must first compensate for the dimming effects of distance on light. And to do that, we must know how far away they are. Distance is among one of the most difficult of all astronomical measurements. We'll return to how it is determined after we have learned a little bit more about stars. For now, we will describe how astronomers specify the apparent brightness of stars. The magnitude scale. The process of measuring the apparent brightness of stars is called photometry. The word has two parts. Both parts come from the Greek. Photo means light and metri comes from the uh, root meaning to measure. Astronomical photometry began with Hipparchus around 150 BC. He erected an observatory on the island of Rhodes in the Mediterranean. There he prepared a catalog of nearly a thousand stars that, could, that included not only their positions, but also estimates of their apparent brightness. Hipparchus did not have a telescope or any instrument that could measure the apparent brightness accurately. I mean, it was 150 BC. So he simply made estimates with his eyes. He sorted the stars into six brightness categories, each of which he called a magnitude. He referred to the brightest stars in his catalog as the first magnitude stars, whereas those so faint he could barely see them were sixth magnitude stars. During the 19th century, astronomers attempted to make the scale more precise by establishing exactly how much the apparent brightness of a sixth magnitude star differs from that of a first magnitude star. Think about how interesting that is. In the 1800s, which really wasn't that long ago, astronomers were still using a magnitude scale developed by an ancient Greek astronomer in 150 BC. And that scale that was developed in 150 BC was just based on what that astronomer could distinguish with his eyes. Well, as it turns out, it, it was kind of a useful categorization. Measurements showed that we receive about 100 times more light from a first magnitude star than from a sixth magnitude star. Based on this measurement, astronomers then defined an accurate magnitude system in which a difference of five magnitudes corresponds exactly to a brightness ratio of 100 to 1. In addition, the magnitudes of stars are decimalized. For example, a star isn't just a second magnitude star, it has a magnitude of 2.0 or 2.1 or 2.3 and so forth. At this point, the text goes into way too much explanation for this magnitude scale using the 1.0, 2.0, 3.0 and so forth. We're going to skip over that because it's not important to us. We're going to jump to a question. Uh, the text reads, you might be saying to yourself at this point, why do astronomers continue to use this complicated system for more than 2,000 years ago? That's an excellent question, and as we shall discuss, astronomers today can use other ways of expressing how bright a star looks. But because the system is still used in many books, star charts, and computer apps, the authors write, we felt we had to introduce it to students, even though we were very tempted to leave it out. Okay. The brightest stars, those that were traditionally referred to as first magnitude stars, actually turned out, when measured accurately, not to be identical in brightness. For example, the brightest star in the sky, Sirius, sends us about 10 times as much light as the average first magnitude star.
On the modern magnitude scale, Sirius, the star with the brightest apparent magnitude, has been assigned a magnitude of negative 1.5. Other objects in the sky can appear even brighter. Venus, at its brightest, is a magnitude of negative 4.4, while the Sun has a magnitude of negative 26.8. Figure 17.2 shows the range of observed magnitudes from the brightest to the faintest, along with the actual magnitudes of several well-known objects. The important fact to remember when using this magnitude is that the system goes backwards. The larger the magnitude, the fainter the object you are observing. At this point, there is a box, and it has a calculation. And if you're a math type like me, or you just really want to see how this works, I really recommend that you look at it. The upshot is that it shows why having large negative values for the brightest stars makes sense using the equation. If we use negative numbers for the brightest stars, then we come out with physical um, comparisons that actually make sense to anybody on the street. So it just explains that aspect. I'm not going to go through the calculation because I think it would make everyone a little crazy. So we're going to move on to other units of brightness. Although the magnitude scale is still used for visual astronomy, it is not used in all the newer branches of the field. In radio astronomy, for example, no equivalent of the magnitude system has been defined. Rather, radio astronomers measure the amount of energy being collected each second by each square meter of a radio telescope. Similarly, most researchers in the fields of infrared, x-ray, and gamma-ray astronomy use the energy per area per second rather than magnitudes to express the results of their measurements. Nevertheless, astronomers in all fields are careful to distinguish between two things, the luminosity of the source, even when that luminosity is all in x-rays, and the amount of energy that happens to reach us on Earth. After all, the luminosity is a really important characteristic that tells us a lot about the object in question, whereas the energy that reaches Earth is an accident of cosmic geography. The key thing to remember is that luminosity is a lot like the wattage of a light bulb. Luminosity doesn't depend on how far the observer, you or me, is from the light bulb, right? The luminosity is still the same, so the wattage of the light bulb is still the same. But the apparent brightness does depend on how close or far we are from that light bulb, or in our case here, the star. Now, one cool thing about the text is that it's going to ignore apparent magnitudes and brightness. It's going to talk only about luminosity, so that really simplifies the discussion for us. And as a final reminder, the luminosity of the sun is denoted as L, and it's L subscript sun. So if we talk about a star that has 25 times the luminosity of the sun, like Sirius, then if we want to describe its luminosity, we just write 25 times L subscript sun, 25 times the luminosity of the sun. The next section is 17.2, and it's on the colors of stars. And by the end of this section, you should be able to do two things. One, compare the relative temperatures of stars based on their colors. And two, understand how astronomers use color indexes to measure the temperatures of stars. Look at the beautiful picture of stars in the Sagittarius star cloud shown in figure 17.3. The stars show a multitude of colors, including red, orange, yellow, white, and blue. As we have seen, stars are not all the same color because they do not all have identical temperatures. To define color precisely, astronomers have devised quantitative methods for characterizing the color of a star and then using those colors to determine stellar temperatures. In the chapters that follow, we will provide the temperature of the stars we are describing. And this section tells you how those temperatures are determined from the colors of light stars give off. Color and temperature. Before we go on, I'm going to say something about colors that you might know or you might not know yet. Color is, is basically what we use to describe different wavelengths of visible light. Everything that we see with our eyes is in some individual color or a mixture of colors. And the colors themselves represent a part of what we call the electromagnetic spectrum, and it represents a really narrow piece of it, and it represents what we call the visible region. Just before 
the visible region, lower in energy, we have infrared, and before that we have microwave and we have radio waves. Just above the visible portion of the spectrum, a little higher in energy, we have ultraviolet radiation, and then we have things like x-rays and gamma rays. So as it turns out, the electromagnetic spectrum, which defines all the radiation that we know of, is organized in such a way that we have low energy portions of the, the spectrum, which include radio, and high energy portions of the spectrum, which include things like x-rays and gamma rays. And then there's a tiny sliver in the middle that corresponds to what we see with our eyes. Now, what we know from rainbows is that we can organize the colors in a particular way, and that's actually how they're organized in terms of energy on the spectrum. If we start with red and then go to orange and through the yellows and green and end up at blue and maybe violet, then if we go in that direction, we're going in a direction of increasing energy. So as it turns out, red is the lowest energy form of radiation that we can see with our eyes. And blue, and sort of the more violetish looking colors, are the more, more, most energetic forms of radiation that we can see with our eyes. Just below red, we have infrared. We can't see it. It's a lower energy form of radiation, but we can feel it. It's warmth. And just above violet, we have ultraviolet. We can't see it. It's too high of energy, and it can cause things like skin damage. So knowing that red is the lowest energy form of radiation that we can see with our eyes, and that blue is a higher energy form of radiation that we can see with our eyes, it shouldn't come as a surprise that red stars are associated with lower temperatures, and blue stars are associated with stars that have higher temperatures. So we'll continue the reading. They're going to start with something called Wine's Law which is just a scientific law, and they define it as they go along in the text. Color and temperature. Wine's law relates stellar color to stellar temperature. Blue colors dominate the visible light output of very hot stars, with much additional radiation in the ultraviolet. On the other hand, cool stars emit most of their visible light energy at red wavelengths, with more energy coming off in the infrared. The color of a star, therefore, provides a measure of its intrinsic or true surface temperature. A little later, we'll learn how interstellar dust can make the stars look a little bit redder, but we'll skip that for now. Color does not depend on the distance to the object. This should be familiar to you from everyday experience. The color of a traffic signal, for example, appears the same no matter how far away it is. The same with a star. Its color will be the same regardless of how far away it is. So there is a table now, and it says example star colors and their approximate temperatures. And if you have a moment, it's worth looking at because it shows that the blue star colors have a much higher temperature than white, yellow, orange, and red. And so that's sort of the order in which the temperatures fall. First blue, then white, then yellow, then orange, then red is the coolest. Below the table, there is a link to learning box, and I encourage you to visit the link. It says, go to this interactive simulation from the University of Colorado to see the color of a star changing as its temperature is changed. The hottest stars have temperatures of over 40,000 Kelvin. And the coolest stars have temperatures of about 2,000 Kelvin. Our sun's surface temperature is about 6,000 Kelvin. Its peak wavelength color is a slightly greenish yellow. In space, the sun would look white, shining with about equal amounts of reddish and bluish wavelengths of light. It looks somewhat yellow as seen from Earth's surface because our planet's nitrogen molecules scatter some of the shorter, that is blue, wavelengths out of the beams of sunlight that reach us, leaving us leaving more long wavelength light behind. This also explains why the sky is blue, and the blue sky is sunlight scattered by the atmosphere. It also, by the way, explains why sunsets and sunrises are red, because in a sunset or sunrise, the sunlight travels through much more of Earth's atmosphere before it reaches your eyes, so a lot of the blue is scattered away. And that's why we're left with sunrises and sunsets that are red and orange and yellow. The very last part of this section is over color indices, and we're going to skip some of it because it goes into tedious detail that we really don't need. But I will read a couple of uh, pieces from this last part. 
color indices. In order to specify the exact color of a star, astronomers normally measure a star's apparent brightness through filters, each of which transmits only the light from a particular narrow band of wavelengths or colors. A crude example of a filter in everyday life is a green-colored plastic soft drink bottle, which, when held in front of our eyes, lets only the green colors of light through. One commonly used set of filters in astronomy uses stellar brightness at three wavelengths corresponding to ultraviolet, blue, and yellow light. The brightness measured through each filter is usually expressed in magnitudes, and the difference between any of these magnitudes, say between blue and the visual magnitudes, is called a color index. There's a link to Learning Box here that has a link that would be interesting to visit, particularly if you've taken my Science 120, 120L class on light and sound. It says, go to this light and filters simulator for a demonstration of how different light sources and filters can combine to determine the observed spectrum. You can also see how preserved colors, how, sorry, how perceived colors are associated with the spectrum. So why use a color index if it ultimately implies temperature? Because the brightness of a star through a filter is what astronomers actually measure, and we're always more comfortable when our statements have to do with measurable quantities. So the portion that I skipped in this section has to do with calculating values based on what the filters tell us. Okay. This is section 17.3, which is on the spectra of stars and brown dwarfs. By the end of this section, you should be able to do two things. First, describe how astronomers use spectral classes to characterize stars. And two, to explain the difference between a star and a brown dwarf. Measuring colors is only one way of analyzing starlight. Another way is to use a spectrograph to spread the light out into a spectrum. In 1814, the German physicist Joseph Fraunhofer observed that the spectrum of the sun shows dark lines crossing a continuous band of colors. This would be like a rainbow, and you would have, instead of all of the colors, one would be missing, and you would see a dark arc where that color was. In the 1860s, English astronomers Sir William Huggins and Lady Margaret Huggins succeeded in identifying some of the lines in the stellar spectra as those of known elements on Earth, showing that the same chemical elements found in the Sun and planets exist in stars. Since then, astronomers have worked hard to perfect the experimental techniques for obtaining and measuring spectra, and they have developed a theoretical understanding of what can be learned from spectra. Today, spectroscopic analysis is one of the cornerstones of astronomical research. Formation of stellar spectra. When the spectra of different stars were first observed, astronomers found that they were not all identical. Since the dark lines are produced by the chemical elements present in the stars, astronomers first thought that the spectra differ from one another because stars are not all made of the same chemical elements. This hypothesis turned out to be wrong. The primary reason that stellar spectra look different is because the stars have different temperatures. Let me repeat that. The primary reason that star spectra look different is because the stars have different temperatures. Most stars have nearly the same composition of the sun, with only a few exceptions. Hydrogen, for example, is by far the most abundant element in most stars. However, lines of hydrogen are not seen in the spectra of the hottest and coolest stars. In the atmosphere of the hottest stars, hydrogen atoms are completely ionized. Because the electron and proton are separated, ionized hydrogen cannot produce the absorption lines we normally see. In the atmospheres of the coolest stars, hydrogens have their electrons attached and can switch energy levels to produce lines. However, practically all of the hydrogen atoms are in the lowest energy state, meaning they're unexcited in these stars, and can thus absorb only those photons able to lift an electron from the first energy level to a higher level. That's a lot of energy, as it turns out. Photons with enough energy to do this lie in the ultraviolet part of the electromagnetic spectrum, and there are very few ultraviolet photons in the radiation from a cool star. What this means is that if you observe the spectrum of a very hot or cool star with a typical telescope on the surface of the Earth, the most common element in that star, hydrogen, will show very weak spectral lines or none at all.
The hydrogen lines in the visible part of the spectrum, called the Balmer lines, are the strongest in stars with intermediate temperatures. Not so hot that the electrons are far away from the element and not able to produce a line, and not so cold that even the light from the star itself can't make that electron jump high enough to create the line. Calculations show that the optimum temperature for producing visible hydrogen lines is about 10,000 Kelvin. At this temperature, an appreciable number of hydrogen atoms are excited to the second energy level. They can absorb additional photons, rise to still higher levels of excitation, and produce a dark absorption line. Similarly, every other chemical element in each of its possible stages of ionization has a characteristic temperature at which it is most effective in producing absorption lines in any particular part of the spectrum. So the lines in the spectra tell us what elements are present in the star, and sometimes the star is too hot to allow us to know that an element is there, and sometimes it's too cold. But historically, we've used the stellar spectra to help us classify stars. So we're going to read the subsection about that. Classification of stellar spectra. Astronomers use the patterns of lines observed in stellar spectra to sort stars into a spectral class. Because a star's temperature determines which, which absorption lines are present in its spectrum, these spectral classes are a measure of its surface temperature. There are seven standard spectral classes. From hottest to coldest, these seven spectral classes are designated O, B, A, F, G, K, and M. Recently, astronomers have added three additional classes for even cooler objects, L, T, and Y. At this point, you may be thinking about these letters and wonder and asking yourself, why don't astronomers call the spectral types A, B, C, and so on? It'd make things so much easier. You'll see, as we tell you the history, that it's an instance where tradition won out over common sense. I think we see this in the political theater again and again. In the 1880s, Williamina Fleming designed a system to classify stars based on the strength of hydrogen absorption lines. Spectra with the strongest lines were classified as A stars, the next strongest were B, and so on down the alphabet to O stars, in which the hydrogen lines were very weak. But we saw above that hydrogen lines alone are not a good indicator for classifying stars, since their lines disappear from the visible light spectrum when the stars get too hot or too cold. In the 1890s, Annie Jump Cannon revised this classification system, focusing on just a few letters in the original system, A, B, F, G, K, M, and O. Instead of starting over, Cannon also rearranged the existing classes in order of decreasing temperature into the sequence we've seen before. O for the hottest stars, B, A, F, G, K, and M for the cooler stars. As it turns out, Annie Cannon could classify up to three stars a minute by looking at stellar spectra, and she classified around 500,000 stars in her lifetime. There's a link to Learning Box here that I really encourage you to take a look at. It says, for a deep dive into spectral types, explore the interactive project at the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, in which you can practice classifying stars for yourself. To help astronomers remember this crazy order of letters, Canon created a mnemonic that is very outdated for us at this point, but I'll tell you what it is anyway. It says, oh, be a fine girl and kiss me. Or if you prefer, you can substitute guy for girl. There are other mnemonics too, and you can extend them to include L, T, and Y. Okay, I'm going to move quickly through these next two paragraphs because they're kind of silly. Um, one just tells you that we divide the spectral classes, we further subdivide them by using numbers. So something like a B0 star would be hotter than a B9 star, and a B9 star would be hotter than an A0 star, and an A0 star would be hotter than an A9 star. We don't really need to get into that much detail. The other thing is kind of odd, so I'm, I'm a little hesitant to mention it because it, it doesn't align with uh, the scientific viewpoint, um, but it says that uh, astronomers historically have called elements heavier than helium, which is only the second heaviest element, metals. And so I would just say, caution yourself, um, any chemist, any physicist, any engineer would say, no, uh, <laughs> there are metals heavier than helium that are not 
or there are elements heavier than helium that are not metals. So the way we define um, metallic elements is based on their properties. So anyway, but in astronomy, okay, that works for them. So we'll let that be. All right, let's take a look at some of the details of how the spectra of the stars change with temperature. It is in these details that Annie Cannon was allowed to identify the spectral types of stars as quickly as three per minute. As figure 17.5 shows, in the hottest O stars, those with temperatures of over 28,000 Kelvin, only lines of ionized helium and, ionized, uh, and highly ionized atoms of other elements are conspicuous. Hydrogen lines are strongest in A stars with atmospheric temperatures of about 10,000 Kelvin. Ionized metals provide the most conspicuous lines in stars with temperatures from 6,000 to 7,500 Kelvin, the spectral type F. And remember, they're using metal here to talk about anything heavier than helium. In the coolest M stars below 3500 Kelvin, absorption bands of the titanium oxide and other molecules are very strong. By the way, the spectral class assigned to the sun is G2. The sequence of spectral classes is summarized in table 17.2. I recommend that you take a look at figure 17.5, which they've referred to. It's, it's very clear what they're trying to say. And I also recommend that you spend a little time with table 17.2. It describes spectral classes, their associated color, their associated approximate temperature, principal features for those classes, and then it gives examples of some of those stars. To see how spectral classification works, let's use figure 17.5. Assume you have a spectrum in which the hydrogen lines are about as half as strong as those seen in an A star. Looking at the lines in our figure, you see that the star could either be a B star or a G star, but if the spectrum also contains helium lines, then it is a B star, whereas if it contains lines of ionized iron or other metals, it must be a G star. If you look at figure 17.6 and you can see that you too could assign a spectral class to a star whose type was not already known. All you have to do is match the pattern of spectral lines to a standard star, like the one shown in the figure, whose type already has been determined. So it's like comparing something that you get from a star to a barcode. If they match up, you know what kind of star it is. Both colors and spectral classes can be used to estimate the temperature of a star. Spectra are harder to measure because the light has to be very bright, bright enough to be spread out into all colors of the rainbow, and detectors must be sensitive enough to respond to individual wavelengths to notice if one is missing. In order to measure colors, the detectors need only respond to the many wavelengths that pass simultaneously through the colored filters that have been chosen, that is, to all the blue light or all the yellow-green light. There is a Voyagers in Astronomy box here that tells us more about Annie Cannon, the classifier of stars, so let's take a look at this. Annie Jump Canyon was born in Delaware in 1863. In 1880, she went to Wellesley College, one of the new breed of U.S. colleges, opening up to educate young women. Wellesley, only five years old at the time, had the second student physics lab in the country and provided excellent training in basic science. After college, Cannon spent a decade with her parents but was very dissatisfied, longing to do scientific work. After her mother's death in 1893, she returned to Wellesley as a teaching assistant and also to take courses at Radcliffe, the women's college associated with Harvard. In the late 1800s, the director of the Harvard Observatory, Edward C. Pickering, needed lots of help with his ambitious program of classifying stellar spectra. The basis for these studies was a monumental collection of nearly a million photographic spectra of stars, obtained from many years of observations made at the Harvard College Observatory in Massachusetts, as well as its remote observing stations in South America and South Africa. Pickering quickly discovered that educated young women could be hired as assistants for one-third or one-fourth of the salary paid to men, and they would often put up with working conditions and repetitive tasks that men with the same education would not tolerate. These women became known as the Harvard computers. We should emphasize that astronomers were not alone in reaching such conclusions about the relatively new idea of upper-class educated women working outside the home. Women were exploited and undervalued in many fields. This is a legacy from which our society is just beginning to emerge. 
Cannon was hired by Pickering as one of the computers to help with the classification of spectra. She became so good at it that she could visually examine and determine the spectral types of several hundred stars per hour, dictating her conclusions to an assistant. She made many discoveries while investigating the Harvard photographic plates, including 300 variable stars, stars whose luminosity changes periodically. We'll learn more about those later. But her main legacy is a marvelous catalog of spectral types for hundreds of thousands of stars, which served as a foundation for much of the 20th century astronomy. In 1911, a visiting committee of astronomers reported that she is the one person in the world who can do this work quickly and accurately, and urged Harvard to give Cannon an official appointment in keeping with her skill and renown. Not until 1938, 27 years later, did Harvard appoint her an astronomer at the university. She was then 75 years old. Cannon received the first honorary degree Oxford offered a woman, and she became the first woman to be elected an officer of the American Astronomical Society, the main professional organization of astronomers in the U.S. She generously donated the money from one of the major prizes she had won to found a special award for women in astronomy, now known as the Annie Jump Cannon Prize. True to form, she continued classifying stellar spectra almost to the very end of her life in 1941. Spectral classes L, T, and Y. The scheme devised by Cannon worked well until 1988, when astronomers began to discover objects even cooler than M9-type stars. We use the word object because many of the new discoveries are not true stars. A star is defined as an object that during some part of its lifetime derives 100% of its energy from the same process that makes our sun shine, the fusion of hydrogen nuclei, or protons, into helium. Objects with masses less than about 7.5% the mass of our sun do not become hot enough for fusion to take place. Even before such a failed star was found, this class of objects with masses intermediate between stars and planets was given the name brown dwarfs. Brown dwarfs are very difficult to observe because they're extremely faint and cool, and they put out most of their light in the infrared part of the spectrum. It was only after the construction of very large telescopes, like the Keck telescope in Hawaii, and the de development of very sensitive infrared detectors that the search for brown dwarfs succeeded. The first brown dwarf was discovered in 1988, and as of the summer of 2015, there are more than 2,200 known brown dwarfs. Initially, brown dwarfs were given spectral classes like M10+, or much cooler than M9, but so many are now known that it is possible to begin assigning spectral types. The hottest brown dwarfs are given types L0 to L9, and still cooler objects are given types T0 to T9. In class L brown dwarfs, the lines of titanium oxide, which are strong in M stars, have disappeared. This is because the L dwarfs are so cool that atoms and molecules can gather together into dust particles in their atmosphere. The titanium is locked up in the dust grains rather than being available to form molecules of titanium oxide. Lines of steam, hot water vapor, are present, along with lines of carbon monoxide and neutral sodium, potassium, cesium, and rubidium. Methane lines are stronger in the class T brown dwarfs, as methane exists in the atmosphere of the giant planets in our solar system. In 2009, astronomers discovered ultra-cool brown dwarfs with temperatures of 500 to 600 Kelvin. These objects ex exhibited absorption lines due to ammonia, which are not seen in T-dwarfs. A new spectral class, Y, was created for these objects. As of 2015, over two dozen brown dwarfs belonging to the spectral class Y have been discovered, some with temperatures comparable to that of a human body, about 300 Kelvin. Most brown dwarfs start out with atmospheric temperatures and spectra, like those of true stars with spectral classes of M6.5 and later, even though brown dwarfs are not hot and dense enough in their interiors to fuse hydrogen. In fact, the spectra of brown dwarfs and true stars are so similar from spectral types late M through L that it is not possible to distinguish between the two types of objects based on their spectra alone. An independent measure of mass is required to determine whether a specific object is a brown dwarf or a very low mass star. Since brown dwarfs cool steadily throughout their lifetimes, their fusion is really inefficient. The spectral type of a given brown dwarf changes with time over 
a billion years, more from late M through L, T, and Y spectral types. Low-mass brown dwarfs versus high-mass planets. An interesting property of brown dwarfs is that they are all about the same radius as Jupiter, regardless of their masses. Amazingly, this covers a range of masses from about 13 to 80 times the mass of Jupiter. This can make distinguishing a low-mass brown dwarf from a high-mass planet very difficult. So what's the difference between a low-mass brown dwarf and a high-mass planet? Why isn't Jupiter? a low-mass brown dwarf. The International Astronomical Union considers the distinctive feature to be deuterium fusion. Although brown dwarfs do not sustain regular proton-proton hydrogen fusion, as our sun does, they are capable of fusing deuterium, which is that heavy form of hydrogen we talked about before, with one proton and one neutron in its nucleus. The fusion of deuterium can happen at a lower temperature than the fusion of hydrogen. If an object has enough mass to fuse deuterium, it's a brown dwarf. Objects with less than 13 times the mass of Jupiter do not fuse deuterium and are usually considered planets. Okay, so we are in the last section of chapter 17, and it's titled Using Spectra to Measure Stellar Radius, Composition, and Motion. And by the end of this section, you should be able to do three things. First, understand how astronomers can learn about a star's radius and composition by studying its spectrum. Second, explain how astronomers can measure the motion and rotation of the star using the Doppler effect. And third, describe the proper motion of a star and how it relates to a star's space velocity. Analyzing the spectrum of a star can teach us all kinds of things in addition to its temperature. We can measure its detailed comp chemical composition as well as the pressure in its atmosphere. From the pressure, we get clues about its size. We can also measure its motion toward or away from us and estimate its rotation. Clues to the size of a star. As we shall see later, stars come in a wide variety of sizes. At some periods in their lives, stars can expand to enormous dimensions. Stars of such exaggerated size are called giants. Luckily for the astronomer, stellar spectra can be used to distinguish giants from run-of-the-mill stars like our sun. Suppose you'd like to determine whether a star is a giant. A giant star has a large extended photosphere. Because it is so large, a giant star's atoms are spread over a great volume, which means that the density of particles in the star's photosphere is low. As a result, the pressure in the giant star's photosphere is also low. This low pressure affects the spectrum in two ways. First, a star with a lower pressure photosphere shows narrower spectral lines than a star of the same temperature with a higher pressure photosphere. The difference is large enough that careful study of the spectra can tell us which of two stars at the same temperature has a higher pressure and is thus more compressed, and which has a lower pressure and thus must be extended. This effect is due to collisions between particles in the star's photosphere. Particles are moving around all the time and very fast. And more collisions lead to broader, broader spectral lines. The collisions will be more frequent in a higher density environment. It's like you in a room crowded with people. The more people there are, the more likely, if you're moving from one place to the next, that you'll run into somebody. Second, more atoms are ionized in a giant star than in a star like the sun with the same temperature. The ionization of atoms in a star's outer layers is caused mainly by photons, and the amount of energy carried by photons is determined by the temperature. But how long atoms stay ionized depends in part on the pressure. Compared with what happens in the sun with its relatively dense photosphere, Ionized atoms in a giant star's photosphere are less likely to pass close enough to electrons to interact and combine with one or more of them, thereby becoming neutral again. Ionized atoms, as we discussed earlier, have different spectra than atoms that are neutral. Abundances of the elements. Absorption lines of a majority of the known chemical elements have now been identified in the spectra of the sun and stars. If we see lines of iron in a star spectrum, for example, then we know immediately that the star must contain iron. Note that the absence of an element's spectral lines does not necessarily mean that the element itself is absence. As we saw, 
Temperature and pressure in a star's atmosphere will determine what types of atoms are able to produce absorption lines. Only if the physical conditions in a star's photosphere are such that the lines of an element should, according to calculations, be there can we conclude that the absence of observable spectral lines implies low or no abundance of the element. Suppose two stars have identical temperatures and pressures, but the lines, say, of sodium are stronger in one than the other. Stronger lines mean that there are more atoms in the stellar photosphere absorbing light. Therefore, we know immediately that in the star with stronger sodium lines, it has more sodium. Complex calculations are required to determine exactly how much more, but those calculations can be done for any element observed in any star with any temperature and pressure. Of course, astronomy textbooks such as ours always make these things sound a bit easier than they really are. If you look at the stellar spectra, such as those in figure 17.6, you may get some feeling for how hard it is to decode all the information contained in the thousands of absorption lines. First of all, it takes it has taken many years of careful laboratory work on Earth to determine the precise wavelengths at which hot gases of each element have their spectral lines. Long books and computer databases have been compiled to show the lines of each element that can be seen at each temperature. Second, stellar spectra usually have many lines from a number of elements, and we must be careful to sort them out correctly. Sometimes nature is unhelpful, and the lines of different elements can overlap, making it more confusing. And third, the motion of a star can change the observed wavelength of each of the lines. So the observed wavelengths may not match the laboratory measurements exactly. In practice, analyzing stellar spectra is a demanding, sometimes frustrating task that requires both training and skill. Studies of stellar spectra have shown that hydrogen makes up about three quarters of the mass of most stars, like our sun. Helium is the second most abundant element, making up almost a quarter of a star's mass. Together, hydrogen and helium make up from 96 to 99% of the mass of most stars. In some stars, they amount to more than 99.9%. .9 Among the 4% or less of the heavy elements, oxygen, carbon, neon, iron, nitrogen, silicon, magnesium, and sulfur, those are the most abundant. Generally, but not invariably, the elements of lower atomic weight are more abundant than those of higher atomic weight. Take a careful look at the list of elements in the preceding paragraph. Two of the most abundant are hydrogen and oxygen, which make up water and add carbon and nitrogen, and you are just starting to write the prescription for the chemistry of an astronomy student, that is, your body. We are made of elements that are common in the universe, just mixed together in a far more sophisticated form, in a much cooler environment than in a star. As we mentioned in a previous section, astronomers use the term metals to refer to all elements heavier than hydrogen and helium. The fraction of a star's mass that is composed of these elements is referred to as the star's metallicity. The metallicity of a star, like our sun, for example, is 0.02, since 2% of the sun's mass is made of elements heavier than helium. There's an appendix, Appendix K, in our text that lists how much common how, how common each element is in the universe compared to hydrogen. These estimates are based primarily on investigations of the sun, which is a typical star. Some very rare elements, however, have not been detected in the sun. Estimates of the amounts of these elements in the universe are based on laboratory measurements in the, of their abundance in primitive meteorites, which are considered representative of unaltered condensed material from the solar nebula. Radial velocity. When we measure the spectrum of a star, we determine the wavelength of each of its lines. If the star is not moving with respect to the sun, then the wavelength corresponding to each element will be the same as those we measure in a laboratory on Earth. But if the stars are moving toward or away from us, we must consider the Doppler effect. We should see all the spectral lines of moving stars shifted toward the red end of the spectrum if the star is moving away from us, or toward the blue or violent end if it is moving toward us. The greater the shift, the faster the star is moving. Such motion, along with the line of sight between the star and the observer, is called radial velocity and is usually measured in kilometers per second. 
William Huggins, pioneering yet again in 1868, made the first radial velocity determination of a star. He observed the Doppler shift in one of the hydrogen lines of the spectrum of Sirius and found that this star is moving toward the solar system. <laughs> Better measurements now indicate that Sirius is actually moving away, but Huggins is still celebrated as a pioneer in making such measurements. Today, radial velocity can be measured for any star bright enough for its spectrum to be observed. We'll see later that radial velocity measurements of double stars or binary star systems are crucial in driving stellar masses. Proper motion. There is another type of motion that stars can have that cannot be detected with stellar spectra. Unlike radial motion, which is along our line of sight, that is, something is moving towards us and it is blue shifted or away from us and it is red shifted. This motion, this other one that we can't observe that way is called proper motion. It's transverse. That is, it crosses our line of sight. It either moves to the left, to the right, up or down, or some combination of those. It's neither moving towards or away from us. We can see it as a change in the relative positions of stars on the celestial sphere. These changes, though, are really slow. Even the star with the largest proper motion takes 200 years to change position in the sky by an amount equal to the width of the full moon, and the motions of other stars are smaller yet. For this reason, with our naked eyes, we do not notice any change in the positions of bright stars during the course of a human lifetime. If we could live long enough, though, we would see changes They would be a little bit more obvious. For example, some 50,000 years from now, terrestrial observers, that is, people on Earth, will find the handle of the Big Dipper unmistakably more bent than it is now. We measure the proper motion of a star in arc seconds. That's not a degree, it's not 1 60th of a degree, it's 1 3,600th of a degree. It's kind of small, per year. That is, the measurement of proper motion tells us only by how much of an angle a star has changed its position on the celestial sphere. If two stars at different distances are moving at the same velocity perpendicular to our line of sight, that is left, right, up and down, some combination of those, the one that happens to be closer to us will show a larger shift in its position on the celestial sphere in a year's time. As an analogy, imagine you're standing at the side of a freeway. Cars will appear to whiz past you. If you then watch traffic from a vantage point half a mile away, the cars will seem to move much more slowly across your field of vision because it encompasses more distance. In order to convert this angular motion to a velocity, we need to know how far away the star is. To know the true space velocity of a star, that is its total speed and direction in which it is moving through space relative to our sun, we must know its radial velocity, proper motion, and distance. Those are three different things we have to figure out. A star's space velocity can also, over time, cause its distance from the sun to change significantly. We'll have to do the calculation again. Over several hundred years, these changes can be large enough to affect the apparent brightnesses of nearby stars. Today, Sirius in the constellation of Canis Major, which is called the Big Dog, is the brightest star in the sky. But 100,000 years ago, the star Canopus in the constellation of Carina, which means the keel, was the brightest one. A little over 200,000 years from now, Sirius will have moved away and faded somewhat, and Vega a bright blue star will take over its place of honor as the brightest star in Earth's skies. Now let's think about how quickly a star rotates. If the star is rotating such that its axis of rotation is pointed up and down or left and right or something like that relative to our point of view, we can use the Doppler effect. We cannot use the Doppler effect if the axis of rotation is directly along our line of sight. Um, in that case, what we're picturing, if the axis of rotation is along our line of sight, then the star will appear to rotate in a clockwise or counterclockwise direction, and that won't work. So we have to have the star spinning such that one side is moving towards us while the other side is moving away. To picture this, you can probably imagine someone spinning a basketball on their finger. And when they spin it on their finger, their finger is usually pointed upwards, and so is the axis of rotation. So Depending on the direction that the ball is spinning, one side, let's say the left side, is moving towards your eye, whereas the other side is simultaneously moving away from your eye. So we have to have that kind of situation to use the Doppler effect.
There's only one problem. Stars are so far away that they all appear as unresolved points of light. The best we can do is analyze the light from the entire star at once. Due to the Doppler effect, the lines in the light that come from the side of the star rotating towards us are shifted to shorter wavelengths, that is, they're blue shifted, and the lines of the light from the opposite edge of the star are shifted to longer wavelengths, that is, they're red shifted. You can think of each spectral line that we observe as the sum or composite of spectral lines originating from different speeds with respect to us. Each point on the star has its own Doppler shift. So the absorption line we see from the whole star is actually much wider than it would be if the star were not rotating. If the star is rotating rapidly, then there would be a greater spread of Doppler shifts and all its spectral lines would be quite broad. In fact, astronomers call this effect line broadening, and the amount of broadening can tell us the speed at which a star rotates. So <laughs> just to summarize this visually, if we have a star that's just shining light, let's say it's not rotating at all, or it's rotating in such a way that it's clockwise or counterclockwise, and nothing about the star is actually coming towards or away from us. Then if we look at the spectrum, all the lines will be exactly where they should be. They'll be single sharp lines. If instead the star is spinning such that its axis of rotation is vertical to us or you know sideways and part of the star is moving towards us while part of the star is moving away from us, when we take, when we take the light from that star and we analyze it, those single lines are now simultaneously on one side of the star shifted to the blue side and on the other side of the star shifted to the red. But because we took a snapshot, what it means is that single line that we saw before is now a little bit broader. It's moved a little to the left and a little to the right, so it's gotten wider. That's what they're saying. All right. Measurements of the widths of spectral lines show that many stars rotate faster than the sun, with some periods less than a day. These rapid rotators spin so fast that their shapes are flattened into what we call oblate spheroids. For example, Vega is a star that rotates once every 12.5 hours. Vega's rotation flattens its shape so much that its diameter at the equator is 23% wider than its diameter at the poles. Meaning, if we take the diameter passing through the center and we measure it from one side of its equator to the other side of its equator, that diameter is going to be longer than the measurement from one north pole to the south pole. The sun, with its rotation period of only about a month, rotates rather slowly. Studies have shown that stars decrease their rotational speed as they age. Young stars rotate very quickly with rotational periods of days or less. Very old stars, like me, <laughs> can have rotation part periods of several months. As you can see, spectroscopy is an extremely powerful technique that helps us learn all kinds of information about stars that we simply could not gather any other way. We will see in later chapters that these same techniques can also teach us about galaxies, which are the most distant objects we can observe, and they are beautiful. Without spectroscopy, we would know next to nothing about the universe beyond our solar system. We're going to finish this section with a Making Connections box, and it's titled Astronomy and Philanthropy, so this is worth spending time on. Throughout the history of astronomy, contributions from wealthy patrons of the science have made an enormous difference in building new instruments and carrying out long-term research projects. Edward Pickering's Stellar Classification Project, which was to stretch over several decades, was made possible by major donations from Anna Draper. She was the wid widow of Henry Draper, a physician who is one of the most accomplished amateur astronomers of the 19th century and the first person to successfully photograph the spectrum of a star. Anna Draper gave several hundred thousand dollars to the Harvard Observatory. As a result, the Great Spectroscopic Survey is still known as the Henry Draper Memorial, and many stars are still referred to by their HD numbers in that catalog, such as HD 209458. In the 1870s, the eccentric piano builder and real estate magnate James Lick decided to leave some of his fortune to build the world's largest telescope.
When, in 1887, the pier to house the telescope was finished, Lick's body was entombed in it. Atop the foundation rose a 36-inch refractor, which for many years was the main instrument at the Lick Observatory near San Jose. The Lick telescope remained the largest in the world until 1897, when George Ellery Hill persuaded railroad millionaire Charles Yerkes to fi finance the construction of a 40-inch telescope near Chicago. More recently, Howard Keck, whose family made its fortune in the oil industry, gave $70 million from his family foundation to the California Institute of Technology to build the world's largest telescope atop the 14,000-foot peak of Mauna Kea in Hawaii. The Keck Foundation was so pleased with what is now called the Keck Telescope that they gave $74 million more to build Keck II, another 10-meter reflector on the same volcanic peak. Now, if any of you become millionaires or billionaires, which I'm sure you will, and astronomy has sparked your interest, do keep an astronomical instrument or project in mind as you plan your estate. But frankly, private philanthropy could not possibly support the full enterprise of scientific research and astronomy. Much of our exploration of the universe is financed by federal agencies such as the National Science Foundation and NASA in the United States and by similar government agencies in other countries. In this way, all of us through a very small share of our tax dollars, are philanthropists for astronomy. Now we're ready to summarize chapter 17. 17.1, the brightness of stars. The total energy emitted per second by a star is called its luminosity. It's much like the wattage of a light bulb, but it's a star. How bright a star looks from the perspective of Earth is its apparent brightness. The apparent brightness of a star depends on both its luminosity and its distance from Earth. Thus, the determination of the apparent brightness and measurement of the distance to a star provide enough information to calculate its luminosity. The apparent brightness of stars are often expressed in terms of magnitudes, which is an old system based on human vision and how it interprets relative light intensity. 17.2, colors of stars. Stars have different colors, which are indicators of temperature. The hottest stars appear to be blue or blue-white, whereas the coolest stars are red. A color index of a star is the difference in the magnitudes measured at any two wavelengths and is one way that astronomers measure and express the temperature of stars. 17.3, the spectra of stars and brown dwarfs. The differences in the spectra of stars are principally due to differences in temperature, not composition. The spectra of stars are described in terms of spectral classes. In order of decreasing temperature, the spectral classes are O, B, A, F, G, K, M, and then L, T, and Y. These are further subdivided into subclasses numbered from 0 to 9. The classes L, T, and Y have been added recently to describe newly discovered star-like objects, mainly brown dwarfs, that are cooler than M9. Our sun has a spectral type of G2. 17.4. Using spectra to measure stellar radius, composition, and motion. Spectra of stars of the same temperature, but different atmospheric pressures, have subtle differences. So spectra can be used to determine whether a star has a large radius and a low atmospheric pressure, like a giant star, or a small radius and a high atmospheric pressure. Stellar spectra can also be used to determine the chemical composition of stars. As you know, hydrogen and helium make up most of the mass of all stars. Measurements of line shifts produced by the Doppler effect indicate the radial velocity of a star. Broadening of spectral lines by the Doppler effect is measure of the rotational velocity. A star can also show proper motion due to the component of a star's space velocity across the line of sight. All right, everyone, we did it. That's the end of chapter 17. And I hope that this reading has been helpful to you. It certainly is fun to read along with you and add notes as we go along the way. I'm looking forward to seeing you in your class assignments and to talking to you more through chapter 18. I hope you're all well and taking care of yourselves and I'll catch you next time.